Whether the Church Should Have a Point of View About Sexuality What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. I'm tempted to cut this one very short. And simply say the answer is, of course. But it really isn't that simple, is it? First, Walk the Earth can be found on Facebook. There's a page for Walk the Earth there. There's also a page for the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, both of which can be found on the same feed. The website is www.inappropriateconversations.org. And because they share the same feed, they also share the same Stitcher. So if you use Stitcher at uh, stitcher.com and find Inappropriate Conversations there, you'll find episodes of Walk the Earth mixed in. One of the other things I've been doing lately is putting clips of past shows on SoundCloud. So far, that means that the clips that I've shared, little uh, segments, hints of what the episodes are about, can be found for inappropriate conversations. Because for the first few years, every episode was an, inappro- was an inappropriate conversations podcast. This time, however, I think I am going to share a clip either on SoundCloud or at the end of this episode. So, if what might seem like a straightforward question with a fairly straightforward answer looks to be a longer episode than perhaps it should be, that's because I've added maybe 15 minutes at the end, because I want to share in its entirety a responsive reading of the Old Testament book, Song of Songs, doing so perhaps under the title, Solomon's Song of Songs. Because I don't find this question to be as easy as it might appear uh, just at first glance. The other thing I'll say before I get into answering the question with some degree of specific is that it's possible that this is the first, in fact, might even be the only Walk the Earth episode to carry an explicit language tag. At the time I'm making the recording, I don't know how I'm going to speak the words that are on my mind. It's possible that when I get done and listen back in the edit that I'll find the need to put an explicit language sticker on this episode. It isn't because I intend to use a lot of profanity. It's not because I intend to be graphic. I don't believe that in any way the answer to this question needs to be or will be prurient in nature. Having said that, I do intend to speak freely and to share some concepts that are unmistakably adult. Perhaps I should start by talking a little bit about myself. On one hand, I have lived a life that probably looks a bit like what the traditional view of the church would expect someone to do. I've been married for 30 plus years now, and I've been dating, uh, if you go back to that first date, since I was 16 years old. So I didn't really give myself a lot of opportunity to sow any wild oats, as the saying goes. So on the one hand, you look at that and you say, well, hey, here's somebody who's done it the way a traditional view, like a politically conservative view of what the Bible says might do it. On the other hand, I think that if you were to um, somehow peel aside the conscious mind that I use to share and dive deeply into my subconscious, I think you're going to find a lot of things there, uh, some from memory perhaps and some simply from fantasy that fall maybe well out of the boundaries that some of these politically conservative people might have, uh, have set up. Because from my perspective on scripture, 
When it comes to sexuality, the church needs to have a strong position about fidelity. And I mean that in, in a much broader way than simply this concept of monogamy, that it is possible in a relationship that is more complex than traditional monogamy to still engage in fidelity within your behaviors. Having said that, for me, fidelity means monogamy. So if I were to offer any personal testimony, and I'm not sure that that's what I intend to do today, but if I were to do that, it would be along the lines of being monogamous. And, and maybe the better way to put it from a perspective of Christianity is to call it uh, being faithful, faithfulness. So the challenge that I would put back to people who, when they think of the question of the church and sexuality, immediately conjure into their minds a very long list of don'ts, things that are not permitted, things that are not allowed, things that are forbidden, is that from my perspective, once you escape the issue of adultery, once you sidestep that pitfall, pretty much all bets are off. Now, some of this comes from what might be the difference in a religious right understanding of Christianity and a more progressive, or at least more progressive than that, understanding of Christianity. Because where I come from has been pretty well explained in a previous inappropriate conversation. If you were to listen, for example, to the very long episode recorded late last year, uh, Opening the Scriptures, Inappropriate Conversations number 150, gives you a pretty good idea of how I interpret what Jesus did, what his um, what he meant when he spoke to us in the Sermon on the Mount, what his uh, death and resurrection and ascension truly mean, and how people like Paul and Peter interpreted all of those actions. Meaning that if you were to truck out a long list of Old Testament rules and expect me as a modern Christian to live within the guidelines of those rules... I might ask you instead to explain to me what exactly you think Jesus accomplished on the cross. So, there are specific guidelines related to sexual behavior. In the early part of the Old Testament, those guidelines are all based around the idea of generating as much procreation as humanly possible. The kind of procreation you might expect a society to uh, seek to create if they were in a situation of being surrounded on all sides by hostile enemies and being a somewhat smaller group of people needing to bolster its population and to fill an inherited, for want of a better word, promised land as quickly as possible. So there's that perspective on sexuality. But then there's also this notion of the things that can go wrong within the family unit and within the larger community if sexual relationships break down. So when marriages break apart, and we've actually seen this in, in our society here in the United States, when marriages break apart, and when that leads to a spike in illegitimacy rates, it does create a great deal of stress on society. So a lot of the other things that happen, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are about this notion of fidelity. So if you grant me for the sake of argument that adultery is forbidden, and if you grant for the sake of argument that Everything else falls within the two commandments that Jesus gave us, that we should love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in some cases, that loving relationship might fall, say, within a, what I would describe as a marital relationship or a marital type of relationship. And in that sense, the question of what the church should be saying about sexuality comes perilously close to flying out the window. 
it's an interesting dichotomy for me to deal with. Because on the one hand, I think the church has a very strong opinion to take about the strength and stability of central family relationships, and I don't want anything that I say to sound as if I'm railing against that. The church has a negative opinion about adultery, and it is the one negative opinion from a sexuality perspective that I am willing to point to and say, yes, that's, that's where the church's list of don'ts kind of starts and stops. If you listen, for example, to, well, the, the reading of Song of Songs, it also can be found in Inappropriate Conversations number 81, recorded right around Valentine's Day in 2012. It gives you a pretty good sense that even from an Old Testament perspective, even in the part of the Bible where there was an elaborate set of rules, and that maybe if you, depending on your reading of those rules, you might find as a, as a man married to a woman that there's only maybe a dozen days in the entire uh, lunar monthly calendar that you can actually be intimate with your wife because of the requirement that you not be intimate with her during menstruation and not being and she not being allowed to worship for a certain period of time after that and if you view your sexual relationship as being part of an overall worship relationship you know depending on how you look at it. so for a part of the bible with all of those rules in it rules that i believe were fulfilled by jesus on the cross but nevertheless if you go back to the Old Testament, you find these passages in Song of Songs, which seem, in my mind, unmistakably to refer to oral sexual behavior, digital sexual behavior, and perhaps even a relationship that predates marriage. It's very hard to tell. It's poetic language, of course, which leads to multiple potential interpretations. But there are moments where the two characters, the man and the woman, appear to be having conversations about running away together. And it does appear that uh, he is visiting her home, not their home, and her bedroom, not their bedroom. So it raises some questions along those lines. And interestingly, just to throw it out there as a hypothetical, is it possible to be in a relationship filled with fidelity where the sexual component of that relationship begins before the marital wedding night? And again, I don't have a strong opinion there. Song of Solomon seems to raise questions about whether there's necessarily a large biblical problem with that idea. But to me, I'm more interested in the more flowery language of that particular book and some of the you know, conversations about, well, the comparisons to fruit, the comparisons to twin fawns of a gazelle frolicking on the hillside. Uh, when I read those passages, all references to women's breasts, including uh, grabbing that fruit and tasting that fruit, it, it makes you feel that, on one level, that the Bible doesn't seem to be recommending what we might call the artificial nature of our culture, that when things are artificially enlarged, for example, in the case of breast augmentation surgery, it takes that natural gazelles frolicking on a hill uh, aspect of motion out of things. And it actually refers to a size that would be kind of in a natural habitat kind of a thing. I remember, you know, seeing ads on billboards, probably driving through the state of Missouri, if I'm trying to recall it right. Because during that driving trip through the central part of the United States, I remember being somewhat alarmed by how often you'd find a billboard, uh, one of those large outdoor advertisement billboards, for a church side-by-side side with a billboard advertisement for an adult bookstore or an adult video place of some sort. But I remember seeing advertisements in the past of uh, women uh, who uh, perform striptease acts for a living. 
advertising triple X breast sizes and things of that nature. And what you lose out of there is that, that naturalness of motion. So again, without necessarily having a list of don'ts, without necessarily saying that it's strictly forbidden for someone to uh, engage in what we might in our modern parlance call plastic surgery, it also isn't necessarily something that I would say I see as being recommended in Scripture. However, what I do see recommended in Scripture is the intimacy that a marital relationship can have or a relationship with this quality of strong fidelity can have. And I also don't see anything that would necessarily make it inappropriate for a couple to be creative and to be passionate with one another. In the review, sort of the commentary around the book Song of Songs, in that three-year-old podcast episode, I did talk a little bit about how important it is for us to try to comprehend the love of God, not just from the perspective of what is sometimes communicated by the church as a very benign and passive agape love, which isn't, in my, in my opinion, a fair description of agape love. But it's also somewhat limiting if it leaves out parent-to-child sort of relationships, friendship relationships, and the passion, the passionate sort of love that comes from the expression of husband and wife, or, again, a couple uh, in a relationship that is based upon fidelity. So within fidelity, is the Bible leave room for oral sexual behavior? It absolutely does. Does it leave room for a full range of of hand-type digital sort of contact? It absolutely does. And does it leave range for any and almost all types of sexual positions? Well, again, I think it certainly does. I would not want to presume to speak to or on behalf of an audience of Orthodox Jews, or for that matter, Muslims. I'm not approaching any theistic scripture from that perspective. But within the realm of Christianity, there simply isn't anything that would stand in the way. And yet, I think I've probably described in a very short list, and not a terribly detailed list, because I'm trying to avoid that parental warning sticker, allowing my uh, <clears throat> disclaimer at the beginning to stand and, and be enough of, a, of an alert that you really can't answer these questions without dealing with some concepts that are sexual in nature. But if I speak strictly to a Christian audience, I think that it is fair to say that inside this, this relationship I'm describing, no one's being deceived here. Even if some sort of role play was being done, I, I remember being amused. I'm going to talk about two commercials, one that amused me and one that really annoyed me here in just the most recent couple of months in and around Christmas and, and all that. One was a commercial for, I believe, a lubricant where it was a, a his and hers kind of a mix of lubrication specifically designed for sexual purposes. And in it, this couple that apparently had been straight-laced and very ordinary in their approach uh, had perhaps in their relationship ruled out at some point along the way any sort of sexual fantasy. Once they tried this product, it transformed their sex life into such a way that they were now reenacting scenes that you might describe as, as very bad pornography scripts. I laugh about it because the, it, the commercial ends with a man knocking on his own front door, holding a set of tubing, telling the uh, wife when she answers the door that he's come to fix her pool. Her answer is, we don't have a pool. And they nevertheless embrace passionately. That commercial is amusing. And it really, to me, 
kind of highlights the idea that if you're somebody who watches an ad like that and finds reason to feel that there's a religious objection to what's being presented there between this clearly committed couple, I don't think you're going to find much scriptural support for your point of view. Because whatever you find or you think you find has to answer to Song of Solomon, among other things. Just doesn't work. But there's another one that I think I find frankly very annoying. And if I just grant for the sake of argument that the answer to this question about whether the church has a point of view about sexuality is that certainly it does, but that point of view doesn't extend to a big list of don'ts like some people might assume. From there, where do you go? And I think my biggest issue is that on the one hand, you've got a lot of people who communicate directly or indirectly that there's a whole lot of things that are not permitted. I mean, our perhaps inaccurate view of the Puritans Certainly the cliche about the American Puritanism was that you had people who were uh, missionary position only, lights out, closed as much as possible, never see the other person naked, that sort of attitude. And again, that attitude is a, is a somewhat inaccurate description of what Puritan sex lives were like. But it nevertheless is this sort of prevailing American cultural myth that some people believe, and I think believe mistakenly, uh, is the actual voice of the Bible actually speaks on behalf of Christianity. Not true. But the other side of that coin, perhaps, is this notion that we have in popular culture, and I'm going to go ahead and call it a, a Viagra, a Viagra-type notion, is that um, sexuality begins and ends with erectile functionality, that if erectile dysfunction is in place, then there is no sexuality. And that strikes me as being... Kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting male dominant culture type of, you know, perhaps cultural myth. I can't speak to it firsthand, uh, no pun intended, because I have never experienced that particular issue. This is not me coming from the perspective of, oh yeah, but if that happens to you, it's no big deal. You'll just do this, this, and this. But what I am saying is that if we as a culture continue to define male female sexuality exclusively, from the perspective of sexual intercourse, and make erection the center of that universe, in some ways we're getting closer to an ancient form of Hinduism than we are to the type and view of sexuality presented in the Bible. In other words, because there's nothing restricted about the idea of intimacy coming in other ways, hands, eyes, mouths, for example, that sexuality itself doesn't completely disappear simply because of something like erectile dysfunction. Now, there could be other things that would be a, an issue there. Things psychologically, for example, where uh, the perhaps the resolution to that problem isn't genuinely medical or chemical. If you try to address the issue that Viagra advertises that it can address from the technique that the drug would provide, I worry, frankly, about couples for whom Male penetrative sexual intercourse is the be-all, the end-all, the start, the stop, the entirety of their sexual experience. And to the degree that the church has helped communicate this through patriarchy or some other means, through any form of privilege that's expressed through specific interpretations of scripture, then the church has actually made a fairly terrible mistake. Uh, the one ad in particular that kind of annoys me is is a woman in a blue dress uh, kind of uh, laying around a bed talking about you know how she would rather have sex than whatever. And it's like, well, you know, if you've got a partner that you're engaged with, your options don't, don't necessarily end with erectile dysfunction. 
Now, I say this not as a doctor and not as somebody who has any personal experience, but it does seem to me that in some ways the wrong answer to today's question, an answer along the lines of, yes, the church has an opinion about sexuality, and that opinion has more words in it than the Bible itself, seemingly, and the word don't appears a ton of times, uh, it comes from perhaps that angle. I would describe it this way, and I've described it actually a couple of different ways in the past on inappropriate conversations. One is, where the Bible is silent, I will not shout. And the Bible is silent about issues related to cunnilingus and fellatio, for example, and other related concepts. So where the Bible is silent, I will not shout, is one idea. The other idea, uh, which I think I first read in a book by Oz Guinness, called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. In that book, he, he makes the point that it's not hard to find people who, in answering a question like this one this month on Walk the Earth, would be quick to say that where God has put a period, I won't put a question mark. I won't superimpose a question mark where the Bible has said something. But so often people assume that the Bible says anything that they want to believe it says, or that somebody has told them that it says. And so often the person who they have listened to uh, is, regardless of uh, religious credentials or education, biblically illiterate. And the answer to that, that Ganesh provides in his book, is where the Bible has left a comma, I will not put a period. So, I don't intend to raise questions here where I think Jesus has given us an answer. But I also do not want to superimpose answers based on my fears or my bias or my prejudice or my experience where the Bible has left the matter open-ended. The combination of Song of Songs as an Old Testament book and Jesus and his apostles, including particularly Paul, telling us that we should interpret how we should interact with others through the prism of love, that that combination leaves an incredibly large number of commas when it comes to sexual behavior. Armed with that piece of information, the right answer to today's question, and it was one of the easiest questions that I've faced, so hopefully no one was expecting this to be particularly challenging, whether the church should have a point of view about sexuality. Yes, the church should. But if that point of view, as communicated to you, includes things about the church banning this or banning that or the Bible forbidding this and forbidding that, I've got to tell you that outside the range of sexual fidelity itself, if you can make an argument that it is loving behavior, that the person who wants to kiss his or her partner in a particular way is passionate about it, and the person who is on the receiving end of that kiss is equally passionate about receiving it. And the giving and receiving of those particular kisses brings the couple close together in a way that is both unmistakably sexual, but also unmistakably intimate. It's completely inappropriate for anyone to say that the church should have a point of view about that. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Eternal Creator, you have given us the gift of sexuality. You have brought couples of all, of all sorts, of all types throughout the world and throughout history together in very particular ways. The Bible you've given us, Lord, tells us a lot about those couplings being related to reproduction, but not exclusively so. 
Thank you, Lord, for the accounts in Scripture of couples being intimate with one another in a way that isn't solely intended to create children. Thank you for the love poetry in the Old Testament. Thank you, Lord, for the guidance that you gave while walking this earth, Jesus, and for your inspiration, personally given to apostles like Paul, to explain what you did on the cross and what it meant for us. Lord, I thank you every day for my wife, for our relationship, for both the length, the breadth, and depth of that relationship. And I, I'm so grateful that when I'm done walking this earth, the person who's walked the most with me, the closest with me, has reaped the benefits of the blessings that you've given us together. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether drinking alcohol should be permitted as Christians celebrate and interact. Thanks for listening. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of pearls. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver.
While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Angidi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. 
its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. How beautiful you are, my darling, oh, how beautiful! Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling, there is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinar, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates, with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. 
Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others, that you so charge us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice-yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn, that we may look for him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them missing. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley, to see if the vines were budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back that we may gaze upon you. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite? as on the dance of the Mahanam. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gates of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like a royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine the fragrance of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. 
let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts. Then, if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. 